0: We praise him for his redeeming love this morning, church. Father, we praise you for the story of redemption that is told through the life, death, and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that his blood is sufficient to cover our sins. God, we were no better than either of the thieves that were nailed on his right or his left, and yet your love through him poured out to us all the same. And we thank you for the redemption that's offered to us through faith in your son, Jesus. We thank you for the promise of your word, that though our sins were as scarlet, you have washed them white as snow. Father, we thank you for the perfect righteousness of your son, Jesus, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we thank you for the display of the gospel, the good news of what he's accomplished for us. So fathers, we come to your word today as we consider how the gospel is displayed through marriage, through the love relationship of a husband and a wife. Help us to see Jesus. Father, we desire to see Jesus through your word this morning. So Father, we yield to you. Holy Spirit, we yield to you. Have your way in this place. Speak to us today, Lord, a word that will edify your church and glorify your name. Father, sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We submit ourselves to it now. We ask all these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name you're praying, and everyone said, amen, amen. You can go ahead and have a seat, and uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 is where we'll spend our time together this morning. Um, back in June, we as a church began working verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And uh, right at the halfway point of this message series, we took a short break for a couple of weeks in the book of Acts. And today we're picking right back up where we left off on August 28th. And uh, I just want to be able to say at the very beginning of the message this morning, we do pick back up this morning in a bit of a tense and a controversial place. Because what we find in Matthew 5:31 and 32 are Christ's teachings on the subject of divorce. Um, Now, I recognize many of you may be here today as our guest. You may be here today with us as visitors. So please hear me at the very beginning of the message when I say uh, this is not a soapbox that we have to stand on as a church. This subject is not a personal ax to grind that I have as a pastor. Uh, We have already been working for months through Matthew chapters five through seven. And today we're just looking at the next two verses from the Sermon on the Mount. As a church, we strive uh, in everything that we do to model both unapologetic love and unapologetic truth and unconditional love. And and those two are especially my aim as we look at this passage um, this morning. So um, there's few subjects that are more tense than this one. I think it's safe to say for every single person in this room, it'd be hard to find a person in this room who has not been touched by the subject of divorce in some capacity, either through personally experiencing divorce or just the effects of divorce in your life. But as uncomfortable as it is, it's a subject that's necessary for us to look at as followers of Jesus. Uh, Because when it comes to divorce and marriage, many modern Christians have unfortunately lost sight of what we've been looking at the last couple of months, which is the Jesus way. What is the Jesus way when it comes to marriage? What is the Jesus way when it comes to divorce? As a society, we continue to see the rise of no-fault divorce. We continue to see the rise of divorces uh, over what are just labeled as irreconcilable differences. And unfortunately for the church, we've not been immune to this reality. D.A. Carson, in a reflection on the passage we're going to look at today, has written, Our society, including many professing Christians, has rejected biblical conceptions of both love and marriage. Love has become a mixture of physical desire and vague sentimentality. Marriage has become a provisional sexual union to be terminated when this shrunken love dissolves. How different is the biblical perspective? In God's word, marriage and love are tough-minded. Marriage is commitment, and far from backing out when the going gets rough, marriage partners are to sort out their difficulties in light of Scripture. So what is the Jesus way when it comes to marriage? What is the Jesus way when it comes to this tense and controversial subject of divorce? Uh, Those are the questions that we're gonna answer together today. And so from Matthew 5, 31 through 32, what Jesus shows us is that biblical marriage is a lifetime covenant between a man and a woman until separated by death. And because divorce distorts God's perfect design, it's something that should very rarely occur among followers of Jesus Christ. So Matthew 5, 31 through 32, this is the passage Josiah read for us earlier. I'm going to read it again for us one more time. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So we see first from this passage this morning that a flippant attitude about marital commitment is incompatible with the teachings of Jesus. Verse 31, Jesus leads out here, it was also said. This is a pattern that we've seen repeated over the last several sections of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus would lead out this part of the Sermon on the Mount by saying, you have heard it was said or it was also said. So he would be referring to the faulty interpretations and teachings of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he would follow that up with, but I say to you, this is Jesus establishing his authority. This is what your scribes, your Pharisees, your teachers of the law, this is what they have said to you, but here is what I say to you. We saw this a few weeks ago, just as a reminder for us. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to do what, church? To fulfill it. To bring it to its total realization, to bring it to its total perfect fulfillment. So he starts out here, you've heard it was said, And he addresses the common teaching of the day, follows it up with, but I say to you. So the the question, the the passage in question here that was being debated comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to read the law here in just a moment from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4. And the debate during the time of Jesus uh, primarily ranged around the word indecency that we'll see here in verse 1. This is the Old Testament law. This is what was debated during the time of Jesus. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. So this is where the debate was, wherever this words, some indecency. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord." And he says, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So again, the debate during the time of Jesus primarily centered around Deuteronomy 24.1 and what was meant by some indecency. During the time of Jesus, there were two primary rabbinical schools of thought when it came to the subject of divorce. On the more conservative side was Rabbi Shammai. And what he taught is what Jesus teaches in Matthew five. It was uh, divorce only in the cases of adultery or sexual immorality. And far on the opposite side of the extreme was Rabbi Hillel who took a much more uh, progressive, liberal view when it came to divorce. And the school of thought that came from Rabbi Hillel was they would take the words some indecency from Deuteronomy 24 and take that to mean that a man could essentially send his wife away for any reason that he wanted. Um, he could send her away if she accidentally burned his dinner. First service, I accidentally said if he burned his wife. Um, so so, so he, he could send her away if she burned his, his dinner. He, he could send her away if she broke a dish. He could send her away if she did something that brought him some sort of embarrassment in public. That is the position that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, that was predominant during the time of Jesus is, is they took this very progressive, very liberal view where they were adding permissions to the word of God. Now, you may remember from a few weeks back, I gave you a quote from John Stott that I hope you've held on to because we're just going to keep coming back to it. That the error during the time of Jesus of the scribes and Pharisees was that they would decrease the law's permi- or decrease the law's demands and they would increase the law's permissions. What the Pharisees did is they made the demands of the law less demanding and they made the permissions of the law more permissive. This is what they would do with the word of God and they would treat their interpretations as being equally authoritative with the word of God itself. So with the subject of divorce, what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing is they had increased the permissions. They were taking permissions that had not been granted to them by the law. And in the minds of the Pharisees, they had kept the law simply by issuing the certificate, but Jesus shows them here that they were seriously in error. And I think it's important for us to see that Jesus took the position that was common among those who came from the school of Rabbi Shammai. Jesus teaching here: divorce only in the cases of sexual immorality. So in no way, shape, or form, a flippant or casual approach. Today, unfortunately, divorces are pursued in spades. Uh, couples will, will casually cite no faults when it comes to divorce, or they might just decide they don't want to be married, so, or they'll cite irreconcilable differences. We have competing personalities or convictions or worldviews, and we just can't get along, and so we bring it to the end. We have to see from the teachings of Jesus that, that no fault divorce, divorce over so-called irreconcilable differences, that these things are incompatible with the teachings of Jesus. That these things go outside the bounds of the Jesus way. In just a moment, we're going to look at the biblical permissions for divorce, but Jesus adamantly opposed a casual or flippant attitude when it came to the subject of marriage. I want you to turn with me in your Bible just a few pages over. um, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, we're going to look here in just a second at verses 3 through 6. And we looked at this passage just a couple of weeks ago, but I want us to see this because this further emphasizes what Jesus believed when it came to the subject of divorce and marriage. Matthew 19. Verse three, it says the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So again, they're they're looking for the loophole here. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And he answered, have you not read? So pause here. Jesus is just gonna point them back to the word of God. He's just going to point them back to the scripture. He's going to point them back to what God has revealed as the good and perfect design preserved in his world. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. Again, we just read, read this passage a few weeks ago, church. The reason I want to bring it up again today is because there are so many voices today, even competing Christian voices, who are basically saying, why do Christians make such a big deal about gender? Why such a big deal about marriage? Why such a big deal about sexuality? Jesus didn't have anything to say about these things. Church, Matthew 19, is Jesus saying something about these things? He wasn't silent on these matters. And so there's two things that we see clearly from Jesus's position and what he taught uh, about gender, about marriage, about sex, about sexuality. We see clearly Jesus affirmed that marriage was ordained by God to be a covenant union between a man and a woman, that sex was only to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. That The second thing we see clearly from Jesus is that he believed marriage was a lifelong covenant made between two people only until separated by death. So any type of casual, any type of flippant attitude when it comes to the subject of marriage is completely incompatible with the teachings of Christ. Back to Matthew 5, I'm going to read verse 32 one more time. Jesus says here, but I say to you, so you've heard it was said, now he's going to clear it up, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Adultery. So second, Jesus shows us this morning, while divorce is sometimes biblically permitted, ending a marriage is not commanded or required. Throughout scripture, from a biblical perspective, there there are two instances where divorce for followers of Jesus Christ are permitted. The, The first permission is the one that we've already seen from Matthew 5 and Matthew chapter 19. And the first permission is in cases of adultery. The word that Jesus uses here for sexual immorality is porneia. It's the same word from which we get the term pornography. And and for the first century culture, it it was a catch-all term. It would have covered any sexual activity outside of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Just understand, when people heard that word, when they read that word, they would not have imagined anything else beyond this. That There was a clear understanding of what this word was. So this would have included sex before marriage. This would have included prostitution. This would include same-sex relations. And based on what Jesus taught in the prior section about lust, we would carry that today to extend as well to pornography. All of this qualifies under that banner, that word pornea of adultery under the, guide, or under the banner of sexual immorality. So that's the first permission. The second permission we see in the writings of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, the second permission among followers of Jesus would be abandonment. So permission one would be adultery. That's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. The apostle Paul carries this out a bit more in 1 Corinthians 7 with abandonment. So 1 Corinthians 7, let's read verses 12 through 15. Paul writes, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, parentheses, just a quick note here. What Paul is doing is he's differentiating from the sermon, not from the Sermon on the Mount, but he's just saying, this is not part of what Jesus said. He's carrying out conclusions of what Jesus said. So so he's writing based on the teachings of Jesus. This isn't him just like writing his own opinion. He's just piggybacking off of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, "To the rest I say that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband.'" Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here's the Apostle Paul. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He shows us a second possible exception. And he differentiates here. He says, if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, then the Christian should not seek to end the marriage if the unbelieving spouse consents and desires to stay. But he does say, if the unbelieving spouse leaves, then the believing spouse is no longer bound to that marriage. So, so two instances, I think, are pretty clear from Scripture. One is adultery. The other is abandonment. Now, uh, anytime this subject comes up, uh, it always invites the question, what then about abuse? Are these legitimate grounds for followers of Jesus Christ to bring a marriage to an end? And there were going to be some who would say, no, these are not legitimate grounds. From their perspective, they would say, I don't see that explicitly in Scripture. There are two permissions. That's not among them and would actually require spouses to remain married to an abusive spouse. I believe that we can see from Scripture, not just as a matter of my own personal opinion, I do believe that abuse is under the banner of abandonment. I believe that that we can can see from Scripture, we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture here, we can make the strong case that abuse is functional abandonment and should be perfectly legitimate grounds for permissiveness when it comes to divorce. I want you to turn with me in your Bible for just a moment, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. We're going to camp out here for just a second. And I want us to look at this passage because this is the New Testament biblical vision for marriage how are husbands and wives to relate to one another as bride and groom? What is being displayed in the marriage union? And so we're gonna read here verses 22 through 33, but I wanna just highlight verse 21 because verse 22 is kind of controversial and sometimes we miss what comes right before it in verse 21. In verse 21, I think it's on the screen for you, Paul says that we are supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so everything that follows from this, to keep it in context, starts with us submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. And so he gives instruction to wives, and then he gives instruction to husbands. So verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what Paul says is being displayed in marriage is, is that the wife is modeling to the watching world the picture that we collectively are modeling to the watching world by following the lead of the great perfect groom, who is Jesus. What's being displayed in marriage, in our roles within marriage, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we, we very often get wrapped up in verses 21 through 22, particularly, 23, particularly that word submit. And, and unfortunately, that the church is, is at fault here in a lot of ways, because I, I fear sometimes, uh, for men in particular, we love to quote that verse, but don't pay as much attention to the next big section. And what's it go on to say? Verse 25, it says, "'Husbands, love your wives.'" I need to say that one more time for somebody in this room. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives. Men, don't you dare quote verses 22 through 24 if you're not living verse 25. Don't don't hide behind the word of God to justify the fact that you're not getting it done. Husbands, love your wives because we too are displaying the gospel in this. He says, love your wives, and how are we to love our lives? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's what the loving husband does. And that is what the wife is being asked to submit to. Not not some domineering authoritarian, it's my way or the highway, you better get in line or get out. It's none of that. It's a husband who is saying to her, listen, can, can you come under this? Can you come under me saying, I would literally die for you. I will give myself up for you. I will serve you to the greatest of my capacity. That's what wives are being asked to submit to. Not a domineering authoritarianism, but a a humble sacrifice of a husband who's willing to give himself up. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives, pay attention to this, as their own bodies. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I love this. Paul says this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Throughout scripture, marriage is the dominant metaphor that God uses to demonstrate his covenant relationship to his people. And what Ephesians 5 shows us is that marriage is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what's being displayed. That's what's at stake in our marriage. Like, why are we so firm on on holding to this biblical definition of marriage? Why, Why are we so firm on making sure we're displaying this the right way? That this is not just a cultural issue, church. This is a gospel issue. But we're displaying the gospel in our relationship through the picture of husband and wife and bride and groom. And Jesus Christ, what we see, that the type of husband he is, He loves his wife and he gives himself up for her. Jesus is not an abusive husband to his bride. Jesus does not harm or injure his bride. In fact, Jesus gives himself up and he dies for his bride. On top uh, of breaking his marriage vows, a man who harms his wife denies the gospel of Jesus Christ by his actions. It's a total blatant denial of the gospel. And so, so follow my, my train of thought here for just a moment. Let's talk about the connection between abuse and abandonment. You know, if a spouse is abusive and forcibly removed from the home, or if they're abusive to the extent that, that, that a spouse and the children are no longer safe within the context of that home, that leads to the separation of the family. And that is functional abandonment on the part of the abusive spouse. He's acted and created an environment in such a way that it's no longer safe for the family to be together. And now uh, here's where the pushback comes sometimes. People will say, but, but that's, that, that's what, what about when it's two believers? What, what about when it's, it's a believer who, who's committing the abuse? Because there's no permission for that in scripture. And here's my argument back the other direction. No true believer in Jesus Christ can be a habitually abusive spouse. You can't be. It is a blatant denial of the gospel. It's a total distortion of the gospel. It is incompatible with Christianity. It is impossible for someone who is in truly in Jesus Christ. It, listen, it, it does not matter if, if this person's been in church every Sunday and they give faithfully and they know the whole Bible. It doesn't matter if they're a deacon, doesn't matter if they're an elder, doesn't matter if they're a pastor. No person who habitually abuses their spouse is a true believer in Jesus Christ. Even if they claim to be, the responsibility of the church would be to follow Matthew 18. It's to confront them and call them to repentance. If they refuse, Jesus says, we bring more with us. If they still refuse, it's to be communicated to the church that they're to be treated as an unbeliever because we can no longer say with integrity that they're followers of Jesus. And in that case, it would be an unbeliever abandoning their family. But more than the case of physical abandonment, I believe we could make the case that physical abuse uh, qualifies under porneia. I believe it's a form of sexual immorality. Uh, Jared Wilson offers a really good reflection here. It's kind of long, so just bear with me here for a moment. He writes, Paul's inclusion of abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7 may seem distinct on the surface, but he also includes a curious phrase ensuing, in such cases— that may also expand either his understanding of abandonment or indicate he is citing abandonment as a kind of sexual immorality or similar permissible grounds for divorce. Given the nature of these two major exceptions for divorce in the New Testament, it is reasonable to include physical and sexual abuse and even the habitual unrepentant use of pornography as permissible grounds for divorce. Physical abuse constitutes a kind of sexual immorality. In fact, because it is a direct and, and, and sinful bodily unfaithfulness. It is just as much a violation of Ephesians 5 marital nurture as having sex with someone outside the relationship. It is a destruction of one's own body and dignity and thus a destruction of the vow to protect, cherish, and nurture. You, you gotta think about this here for just a moment. Sex is the ultimate act of vulnerability between two people. The, the marriage bedroom has to be a place of safety. It has to be a place of trust. It has to be a place that is free of coercion. It has to be a place that is free of fear. It has to be a place that is free of manipulation. It has to be free of guilt. It has to be free of, of shame. And whenever any of these are allowed to enter into the bedroom, it's a compromise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an abandonment of who he calls us to be. So, so we have to take very great care here that the, we as followers of Jesus hide behind maybe a verse or two here or there to, to keep sending people back to situations where it may very well be permissible for them to bring the relationship to an end. And, and as we see these permissions in scripture, whether it's uh, adultery, it's abuse, it's, it's abandonment, we as followers of Christ should not be heaping guilt or shame on anyone who pursues divorce under the biblical permissions. You know, that this has been heavily stigmatized, unfortunately, within the church. We're going to see in just a moment, we still want to pursue reconciliation when we can, but we should not cause undue harm to those who pursue divorce for biblical reasons. You know, I heard this story uh, recently, broke my heart. The story of a woman who'd been married to a pastor for a few decades and, and, and kind of from church to church, they would move every few years and throughout the whole course of their marriage, a couple decades, decades, um, he just had habitual uh, pornography use behind the scenes. And so she, she was constantly challenging on this. She tried to bring it to the attention of leadership uh, within multiple churches. Everybody refused to do anything about it when it was brought to anyone's attention. And so finally, as they were uh, on their fourth or fifth church, I think, she brings this up one more time to their elder team. And she says, listen, if, if, nobody, if you don't change here, and if nobody does anything about this, then I'm out. And she communicated that to the leadership of the church. And this was their response to her. They said, we don't see pornography use as explicitly going against what Jesus teaches in scripture. And so they said, not only are we not gonna do anything about it, in fact, if you do what you say you're gonna do, which is leave the marriage, we'll excommunicate you from the church. So guess what she said? Bye. And for good reason. If Jesus shows us that that, man, to, to even have lust in our hearts, is, is to make us just as guilty as committing the act of adultery than certainly someone who's engaged in heavily pornography use. This is the same as cheating against a spouse. And we need to look at it like this. And I've heard it said like this, liberalism will permit what God's word forbids, and legalism will forbid what God's word permits. The Pharisees at different points were guilty of both, and we have to take great care to make sure we avoid either extreme Third, Jesus shows us from this passage that remarriage following an unbiblical divorce leads to further acts of committed adultery. So a little bit of context about the first century culture here. Uh, When women in particular were divorced in the first century culture, they they were left very socially and physically vulnerable. Uh, Most women were not capable of surviving on their own and they would have had no choice but to uh, remarry. And and, and so whenever Jesus says that, that a man who divorces his wife for an unbiblical reason, he's essentially forcing her to commit adultery. Jesus definitely puts the blame on the person who causes the divorce and sends their spouse away. And so it's, it's, not, it's, it's double sin. He says, if, if a man divorces his wife for an unbiblical reason and remarries, then, then not only is he committing adultery again, he's forcing someone else to commit adultery against their will. And so Jesus puts that blame on the person who causes the divorce. And a few weeks back on August 28th, we looked at what Jesus had to say about lust and adultery. So with the subject of divorce, what the Pharisees had done is they had increased the permissions of the law. They were granting permissions that had not been given by the word of God. But with the subject of adultery, they had decreased the demands of the law. They focused purely on the external action, but then Jesus speaks to their hearts. But what Jesus shows them here in the way they had been just arbitrarily sending women away casually, flippantly, Jesus shows them, no, you have committed adultery. Because they didn't have biblical reasons for bringing those marriages to an end. Jesus says, no, you you have committed adultery. You've repeated the act of adultery. In their minds, they thought they had done everything they needed to do by just giving them a certificate of divorce and sending them on their way. But Jesus says, no, you've actually repeated the adultery. This is a difficult truth to process, but Jesus is not clear. To be a professing follower of Jesus and then to divorce on unbiblical grounds and then to remarry would be to commit another act of adultery or to cause someone else to commit an act of adultery. And again, anytime that this comes up from this verse, it becomes the question, okay? So does that mean if a follower of Jesus Christ has been divorced for an unbiblical reason and then remarries, that they should end their current marriage and go back and try to reconcile the old marriage? And I, church, I think that answer is a very clear no. You know, the solution to the sins of our past is not more sin in the future. But we don't respond to sin by committing to sin. And, and listen, if, if that's part of your story, that this is what I want you to hear more than anything else today. Maybe there does need to be confession of sin. Maybe there, there does need to be recognition that what you did in your past was out of step with what God desires in his word. Maybe that needs to happen. Maybe there does need to be confession and, and repentance. But, but the gospel tells us that there is absolutely no sin in your past, present, or future that cannot be covered by the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. And the very best thing that you could do today is, is not feel like you have to atone for the sins of your past, but is to stand in who you are in Jesus Christ, and do everything you can to strive to honor Christ by honoring him in your marriage today. Fourth, Jesus shows us from this passage that even when a marriage is compromised by sin, attempts to reconcile should still be made. Again, divorce is permitted, it's not commanded, it's not required. We'll see this in a couple of weeks whenever we look at, at Matthew chapter six, the Lord's Prayer, that this is part of our prayer every day, right? Forgive us our sins, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sin against us. You know, th- this is difficult to, to, be, uh, to, to think and to process, but what the gospel tells us and what we're displaying in our marriage is that in spite of our faithfulness to Jesus Christ, he remains ferociously committed to us. In spite of our unfaithfulness to him, he remains faithful to us. We as the bride, his church, we have been unfaithful to the groom, Jesus, and yet he has made an everlasting covenant with us. And as difficult as it could be as followers of Jesus, what we want to be able to do to the very best of our ability is at least consider the possibility of reconciliation before we bring things to an end. I I know this seems impossible for many of us today, but let's not underscore, or let's not miss here, the potential of of how it is we can display the gospel through the reconciliation of a marriage that's been compromised by sin. This is the story of the prophet Hosea from the Old Testament. How does God display his covenant love to the nation of Israel? He tells Hosea, his prophet, to go marry a prostitute named Gomer. And so what does Hosea do? He marries her. And whenever she sells herself back into prostitution again and again, what is the Lord's repeated instruction to Hosea? Let's go buy her back. Go buy her back. And what was the Lord doing in the midst of all that? He was showing what his covenant relationship is like with us. You see, we are Gomer. We have cheated on the bridegroom. What we have chased after the things of the world, we have made promises and commitments to him, we'll never do this again. And then we sell ourselves back into the same sins over and over and over again. And what does Jesus do? He calls us back over and over and over again. He purchased us in spite of our sin. And he continues to love us in spite of our sin. In over 18 years of ministry, I, I have seen more marriages that, than I wish were true compromised by adultery. I've seen everything from marriages compromised to, uh, by affairs, to pornography, to full-blown prostitution. And it's heartbreaking every single time. It's, it's devastating every single time, what it does to individuals, what it does to families. But some of the most beautiful pictures that I've been able to see are, are the pictures of how God has preserved and he has restored marriages in spite of some of the very worst of sins. And that's what's displayed in the gospel got a friend um, whose marriage had been in a very, very difficult place and had a conversation uh, with her recently. And it's as a husband, you know, 15 years of uh, of continued, repeated adultery, instances of cheating on her. It's happened multiple times. And and, and every single time that, that it's happened, that there has been this openness, there's been this willingness for him to come back for, for her to desiring to forgive, wanting to reconcile the relationship. And, and almost every single friend in her life for the last decade and a half keeps saying to her, why do you stay? Why do you stay? Why do you stay? Why do you keep putting up with this? And this is always her response. She says, in spite of my sin, Christ has never abandoned me. I'm eager to give. I'm willing to give. Unfortunately, her husband got to the place that he finally just left and, and moved on, but it was never the result of her not being willing to invite him back. And, and man, how powerfully did she display the gospel for those 15 years? In spite of his sin, the willingness to bring him back. Again, I don't wanna contradict the point we made just a couple moments ago. There are biblical permissions for divorce, and those who pursue them shouldn't be guilted, shouldn't be shamed for t- taking the biblical provisions that are there. But let's not miss the potential of how we can display the gospel through a reconciled relationship. And I think there's no question, uh, even in this room this morning, I'd be willing to bet on a few things. There's some here who have personally experienced the devastation of a broken marriage and divorce. I'd be willing to bet that there's some who are here today, you're kind of on the rocks and you've at least thought about divorce. Regardless of where you're at today, husbands and wives, every single one of us is capable of committing sin that could lead us to Divorce. And even too, like if you're, you're single, you're not married, you're like, man, what does any of this have to do with me today? You know, for, for those of you, number one, who, who, who are single, let, let's not forget that the person who was teaching these words in chapter five was himself single. You are not somehow less than anyone else in the body of Christ because you're not married. The most complete human being who was ever, who's ever walked the face of the earth was himself not married, And so what what is displayed even through the life of singleness is contentment in Jesus Christ. If you're single, you desire to be married. You today, you're, you're capable of doing things. You're capable of committing sin that could negatively impact your future marriage. And so this touches every single one of us in this room today in some capacity. Sin's a powerful force that we're hopeless to overcome on our own. And so what I want us to see very clearly here, fifth, most importantly, is that the solution to a marriage destroyed by sin is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, The gospel is powerful, and the gospel is powerful enough to overcome any sin that's in our life. There is no sin in your life. There's no past sin, there's no present sin, there's no future sin that cannot be covered by the blood of Jesus. Listen, we never, ever, ever use the grace of God, the mercy of God, as an excuse to sin. We never quote the grace of God and and abuse it for permissiveness to sin. But we do trust that God's grace is always greater than our sin, this is the best news in, in the world, church. Like, we're, we're all experts at sinning. We're really good at it. We're born naturally good at it. We, we are all born in sin. We, we all participate in sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is way better at saving than you and I are at sinning. His grace is always greater than our sin. And this is how the gospel is displayed as husband and wife through the love that Jesus has for his church. Jesus is the loving husband who lays down his his, his life for his bride. He is the faithful husband who never cheats on his bride. Jesus is the forgiving husband who always returns for his bride. Understand this. No one has ever had more irreconcilable differences than you and I had with Jesus. We were totally sinful and he was totally perfect. We couldn't have anything more opposite. And yet Romans 5.8, I think it's one of the best verses. I think they're all good, but it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Romans 5.8, it says, God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. He, He didn't die for us, friends, because of who we are. He died in spite of who we are. He shed his blood so that we could be covered in his righteousness. We were totally flawed and he was totally perfect. And yet in spite of our flaws, he remains steadfastly committed to us. He gives up his life and he dies for us even while we're sinners. I love these words from Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. This is the gospel in a nutshell. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, we hold tightly to the Jesus way in marriage because marriage is the gospel of Jesus in motion. The love displayed between a husband and wife is meant to display the love that Christ has for his church. And so the question today for us is not, is your marriage preaching the gospel? The question you and I need to ask today is, what kind of gospel is your marriage preaching? Are we preaching a gospel according to the Jesus way, or are we preaching a gospel according to the way of the world? And so as we we close this morning, this is what I want to do, just in light of what we've seen in Matthew 5. I want to close by challenging us with seven commitments that are going to be required if we're going to have marriages that honor the way of Jesus and display the hope of his gospel to a watching world. So walking the Jesus way in marriage, what will that require? Well, we know that it's going to require a commitment to fidelity. And this is not just our commitment to one another. This isn't just about faithfulness to one another. Marital fidelity to one another begins with our faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So we have to be faithful to Jesus. We have to be faithful to his word. We have to be faithful to his church. And then from our faithfulness to Jesus, as we look at Jesus, we're faithful to one another. We're faithful to the sanctity of marriage because it's not just a cultural institution or a human institution. It is a God-ordained and implemented institution. It's his perfect design. Husbands and wives, I hope you don't miss this this morning. The very best gift that we can give to one another is to have a heart that is fully alive and satisfied in Jesus Christ and burning with passion for the glory of his name. That's the best thing we can give each other. That's the only thing we have to give to each other is to have a heart that's content in Jesus. If you want to remain faithful as bride and groom, you need to look closely at the faithfulness of the perfect groom to his bride. This also requires a commitment to humility. If you're going to be married for the long haul, you better be committed to humility. This means practicing repentance and forgiveness. This this means learning to say things like I'm sorry and being able to say things I'm sorry without saying things like I'm sorry but. You realize that's not an apology, right? I'm sorry but here's why it's your fault. Like not an apology. Not at all. And we have to humble ourselves. It's putting our spouse's needs above our own. It's being willing to ask for help from each other. It's being willing to ask for help from others. But listen, when your marriage hits a difficult spot, have the humility to ask others for help. You no, man, I, I thank you by, by God's grace. See, my wife was in the first service this morning. Emily was here earlier. Emily and I, we've been married a little over 12 years. And I can honestly stand before you this morning and before God and say, our marriage today is in the best spot that it's ever been. We just, we're, we're really good friends. We're best friends. We get along well. We were close friends before we got married. And, and by God's grace, that's carried into our marriage. But I'm also willing to be transparent and tell you that there's been twice in those 12 years we've had to ask for help. Like like when you're having the same disagreement, husbands and wives, five, six months in a row, and you're confident that you're 100% right and the other person's 100% wrong, it's time to get over ourselves a little bit and ask for help. Invite an objective third party. Let someone speak into it. Who who is a couple who is walking with Jesus, following Jesus, whose marriage honors the Lord? Have the humility to invite them to dinner and ask for help. Don't be jealous of them. Ask for help. How'd you get here? What have you had to walk through? And what have you had to navigate together? I'm a firm believer that there's two types of married couples. There's those of us who have had the humility to go to counseling and there's those who desperately probably need to go. Like you just, you just need to go ahead and break down and admit today, we are flawed people, we are sinners. You married a sinner, okay? And, and too many of us from the 1900s, man, we bought the Jerry Maguire lie, right? Like you complete me, like Tom and Renee. Like we, we bought all that, but listen, two broken sinners don't make one perfect person, they make one person who's twice as broken and sinful. That, that's, that's what's happening in marriage. Like you're 22, you're 23, and you've got your drama and she's got her drama and you're gonna cram it all into a 700 square foot apartment, right? Like humility, what we've got to ask for help. You know, Paul calls marriage a mystery because in, in marriage, two become one. And there's only a couple of ways. I know, like, I know we've changed math, but there's only a couple ways we can get from two to one. And it's if one either goes another direction or if it's one and one, are each willing to humble themselves and become less. And that is what is required daily from us as followers of Jesus. We're all imperfect, we all fall short. Humble yourself and ask for help. It also requires a commitment to honesty. We have to communicate clearly and regularly. Communicate clearly and regularly. Have time set apart where you can openly share your sin, openly share your struggles, confess to one another, repent to each other and before God when we sin against each other. Invite each other's encouragement. Invite each other's accountability. Don't miss this. Keep no secrets from each other. Keep no secrets. I just want to ask you this morning, would you be comfortable with your spouse seeing everything that's on all of your devices? Would you be comfortable with your spouse seeing a transcript or a manuscript of all of the conversations you have about them? How are you spending money? How are you hiding money? We have to be committed to keeping no secrets, to become one flesh. There's no longer mine and yours, there is only ours. Understand this, most oak trees of sin in marriage started as the acorn of secrets in the ground. And by God's grace, with the help of his spirit, we need to do everything we can to keep the secrets in the open, keep no secrets from one another and be committed to honesty. This also requires a commitment to purity. We saw this a few weeks ago, so I'm not gonna rehash all this, but it means we've got to guard our hearts, our eyes, our minds, and our body. I wanna say a word, especially to those of you who are unmarried in this room and desire, desire to be married, because this is a little bit of a lie that I think came from church culture in the 90s and early 2000s. Getting married is not going to end sexual temptation in your life, okay? Satan hates marriage. He wants to destroy marriage. That's not just gonna magically go away whenever you enter into union with husband and wife. These things all just go away. He triples down on these things. He quadruples down on these things. He's trying to destroy your marriage. So we have to be vigilant, like Jesus showed us in the few verses before, to take extraordinary precautions to avoid even the potential of sexual sin in our lives. The other side of that coin is that to have a healthy marriage and to walk in the Jesus way, it requires a commitment to intimacy. Husbands and wives, are you still dating each other? Are you still pursuing one another? Are you still flirting with each other? Or has all of that just been thrown out the window and been lost? How often do you communicate desires? How often do you communicate expectations? As, as husband and wife, God desires that we maintain a healthy sexual relationship. Listen, it's kind of a taboo subject within the church, but let's make sure we understand. Like, Sex is a very good gift that's been given by a very generous God. And he desires for husbands and wife to enjoy that gift to the fullest potential in the capacity of their marriage. So, so, are we committed to these things? You know, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul reminds husbands and wives that it's no longer you and me, it's now us. The two have become one flesh. The husband's body is no longer his own, the wife's body is no longer her own. We belong to each other. We're not to deprive one another. But I also want to call a time out here on that verse because, man, that's a verse that, that men in particular love to point to. Of to hide behind 1 Corinthians 7 as if like that's the only responsibility that women have in our lives. And so husbands, I really want to challenge you on this this morning. Don't you dare quote 1 Corinthians 7 if you're not doing Ephesians chapter 5. If you're not loving your wife as Christ loves the church. So husbands, if you are not loving your wife, leading your wife spiritually, if you're depriving her spiritually, because you're passive and you're, you're, you've abdicated your responsibility as a spiritual leader in your home. If you're not loving your wife, pursuing your wife, emotionally, you're depriving her emotionally, you won't just have a conversation with her, listen to her, be sensitive to her needs and to her desires and hearing what it is that she has to say. If you're not pursuing your wife, you're, devi- you're, you're, you're depriving your wife physically, she never gets rest, she never gets two seconds to herself. Look in the mirror if you feel deprived sexually. It starts with our spiritual intimacy. It starts with our spiritual intimacy. If we're failing to lead in all of these other areas, how dare we quote 1 Corinthians 7 when we've advocated, abdicated our responsibility to lead within our home. Physical intimacy with each other begins with spiritual intimacy in Christ. And listen, don't miss this. Jesus does not use his bride to satisfy his needs. He gives himself up and he lays down his life so the needs of his bride are continually met. If we're gonna walk in marriage the Jesus way, it's gonna require commitment to integrity. We're gonna look at this next week. It means being the same person everywhere you go, keeping your promises and upholding commitments. Next week, we'll see this. Jesus calls us to be people who let our yes be yes and our no be no. That means we keep our promises, we uphold our commitments, and we're faithful to our marriage vows. Finally, if we're going to walk the Jesus way in marriage, we, we need a commitment to community. This means you developing and maintaining lifelong friendships. But beyond that, it means being fully committed to the body of Christ. We need one another if our marriages are going to make it for the long haul. We're going at some point in time to need the community of the body of of Christ. I just want to share a really short story with you before we wrap up this morning. I've got a pastor friend that I was talking to recently, and he was telling me the story of this, this couple that had been in their church. they have been married for about 15 years, and they were in a leadership position. They led a small group, so similar to our community group dynamic, but just behind the scenes for 15 years that their marriage had just kind of been a mess. Um, there had not been adultery. There was no abuse. There was no abandonment, but the bottom line is that they just could not get along. They were starting to cite irreconcilable differences. He's over here. I'm over here. She's over here. I'm over here. It's just not working. So we've just decided we're going to call this thing quits. And so my friend listens to this story and he, he says, well, well, I tell you what, uh, that's not what you're going to do at all. He said, because as followers of Jesus, we don't, we don't take this flippant casual approach to the subject of marriage, we, we, don't just, we don't just flake out. We, we don't just bring things to an end when it's not going well. He says, so this is what we're going to do together. He said, tonight, we're going to meet with your community group. We're going to meet with your small group. I'm going to come with you. And what you're going to do in your small group is you're going to tell them what's going on. You're going to tell them everything you've been wrestling with for 15 years. You're going to tell them uh, how you, you guys are ready to call it quits, and you're kind of at your wits' end, and this is what's going to happen. We're gonna hand off the responsibility of leading that group to another couple. Um, We're gonna do everything within our power as a church to make sure you have the help that you need to see your marriage restored. And you're gonna have community around you the entire time to be with you and walk with you every step of the way. And by God's grace, church, five years later, their marriage has not just been restored, it's thriving because of the community of the church. Because the church chose when they hit a wall not to brand them with a scarlet letter, but to show them the love of Jesus that was poured out for them through his blood. And that's what he calls us to do today. Listen, I think you've been married for more than five minutes. You know this to be true. Marriage, when it's going really well, is going really, really, really well. And marriage, when it's hard, is really, really, really hard. We're gonna need each other. That There's going to be moments that we're going to need each other. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. And if you are going to have a healthy relationship with the groom, you've got to do a little bit more than just date the church. We need the community of believers. And that's what's being displayed in our marriage with one another. In spite of his bride's unfaithfulness to him, the bridegroom remains faithful to us. And he calls husbands and wives today to display his faithfulness. His faithfulness to us through our faithfulness to one another. You bow your heads with me as we close this morning. In just a moment, we're going to come to the table for communion. And at the table, we are reminded of how the groom loved his bride, the perfect groom. The table's our reminder that, that Christ gave himself up for his bride his body was broken, his blood was shed, so that our sins could be covered, so that we could be healed, so that we could be restored, so that we could be made whole. And in spite of our sin, the hope of the gospel is that Jesus continues to pursue us. He keeps chasing after us. And so husbands, wives in particular in this room this morning, I just ask you to examine your heart, search your heart and ask, Is our marriage displaying the gospel of Jesus? It is preaching a gospel. The question is what gospel is being preached? What sins might you need to acknowledge and confess and repent? What commitments might you need to make today so that your marriage can display the gospel of Jesus in every way? Listen, maybe you're in this room today and you just your life, you have personally experienced the devastation that's caused by divorce. And, and my hope for you today is that even on the pain of that open wound, that you would experience the healing grace and mercy and love that's found in Jesus Christ. There is no sin in your life, past, present, future. That cannot be covered by the cross. May you find healing today. If you're single in this room today and you're wondering, what's all this have to do with me? My hope and prayer for you today is that you could model, even for us who are married, what perfect contentment in Jesus Christ looks like as you. Submit your life to God's will and his direction. Share with him the desires of your heart. If you desire to be married, there's nothing wrong with sharing that desire with the Lord, but don't feel like you're somehow less than anyone else that's here. Maybe even if you're single and you don't desire to be married, and the reason for that is because of how you've experienced divorce in your life, my prayer is that today you could experience the healing hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus. So fathers, we come to you this morning as we sing, as we confess, as we repent, as we pray. Let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you in this place. God, be glorified in the songs and the praises of your people. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice before you. Help us to deal honestly with our sin as we come to to this table. Help us to rejoice in what Jesus has done so that we can be forgiven. We commit this time to you. Receive glory and praise through it all. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.